1: While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Thank you for joining us again today. So Katie tried to go home. So I was about to ask her how things are in Iowa, but I know she's not in Iowa because she didn't get there yet. So Katie, how are things in Minnesota?
0: I was like 80% successful in getting home. Um, Honestly, I was more concerned that I was going to get stuck in Toronto and be stuck in In a foreign country. Which I mean Canada's not like foreign foreign.
1: It's more like getting stuck in an airport. Doesn't really matter where the airport is so much. Just the fact that you're in an airport.
0: Yeah. And a place where you can't even buy guns in Walmart. Like How are we supposed to live like this,
1: you know? Yes, one of our cultural experiences while Katie was visiting was going to Walmart. So, uh, yeah, that gives you an idea of how much culture she saw while she was here. We didn't even, like, see the parliament buildings or anything. So, next time, next time.
0: I met a lot of Canadians. They were all very nice. I spent a lot of time with Arlene and her family. They were all very nice. Um, I got a Lego tour from some of her kids. I threw the ball a lot for Levi the Jack Russell yes. with the tickety tickety toes. Yeah,
1: don't pet him, um, but just keep throwing that ball.
0: Don't pet him. Throw the ball. Um, I got to spend time with Arlene's extended family and friends, and that was lovely. Met my first Barnyard Language podcast fans in the wild. going to have to start carrying a Sharpie, you know, in case anybody wants an autograph. Nobody does, but you <laughs> they know, might. in case they might. You never know. You offer. Um had a great trip, but for anyone not in the US, there is a massive storm system sitting kind of I think maybe across the entire country and maybe most of Canada. I haven't been watching the weather because it's not gonna make any North difference. North
1: America's pretty big, so I wouldn't say most of the country, but localized over you and me. <laughs> they could be separate storm systems. Yeah. I have no but,
0: idea. Uh, but also California is apparently getting, like, freak flooding. and Anyway, so I flew home Tuesday night, and of course the Minneapolis airport is a little over three hours' drive from the farm. But the entire area between the airport and the farm was forecast to get somewhere between 3 and 20-some inches of snow uh, sometime between Tuesday and Friday. So it started snowing just before we touched down, and I have since Tuesday evening been in the Marriott Residence Inn in Bloomington, Minnesota. It's um, actually pretty nice, you know, full kitchen, bathroom, TV, whatever. Getting nice some folks.
1: Uninterrupted work done, I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of reading. And I asked one of my coworkers this morning, you know, because we've I've been working whether they thought that I could expense the hotel as a co-working space because the lobby is entirely full of stranded passengers with their laptops out working. So I've met some lovely folks um, who are stuck here from Denver and Florida and are, you know, relaxing in the Marriott lobby. The employees have been delightful. Um, And I got the world's cutest salt and pepper shakers. (laughs) They're in the room, and they're they're like half an inch tall. I don't know why it's killing me so much to have these. I mean, it's not like packets. They're like straight-up salt and pepper shakers. They're just tight.
1: You're taking those things home, know. are you?
0: I am. I am. And I'm going to ask for a second set, because anybody <laughs> who has more than one child close in age knows that even if the other child does not give a rat's ass about whatever the thing is, you better not just bring one home because there will be bloodshed. That's true.
1: And I don't think you actually did any shopping for your children while you were in Canada. So, I mean, you could claim even that they were uh, the Canadian souvenirs.
0: I could. Um, I will say that I bought one final Tim Hortons Boston cream donut in the Toronto airport because we do not have Tim Hortons in Iowa yet. And a Boston cream donut shoved into a, a carry-on bag, and then hauled through two airports and forgotten about for twenty-four hours.
1: How did that taste?
0: It was better than no donut, but not by much. It was pretty. It's pretty sad. It's um, no longer in a donut so form. How... Yeah, and all the frosting had leaked off, and the outside was stale, and the inside was weird. <laughs> but it was better than no donut. So anyway. Uh, how are things on the farm, Arlene? Oh, things quiet without me yes. following you around. And
1: yeah, quiet. Um, the youngest had to move back into his own room, so he was not oh. not all that excited. But his brothers were happy to uh, move him back out again. So that was a, a transition. So Monday was family day, and today we have a snowstorm, so another snow day. So another very short week in terms of of school, but. Yeah, not much of an update, I guess, since last week. The classifier, we're recording on Thursday. The classifier's here today. So for non-dairy farming folks or people who don't have registered cattle, um, that means this person is a employee of Holstein Canada, and um, they come and basically give our cows a mark. So they get graded, essentially. And uh, so we're hoping for some high marks today. Um, my husband actually set up, we have enough um, passionate staff and family members that they they set up a little um, poll, I guess, or maybe it's more of a betting system. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, people were putting down their guesses as to what the classifier was going to give certain cows. So, so not only will we get to see what the classifier does, but we'll get to see who wins in terms of uh, who has the closest to guess to what the classifier does today. So I'll let you know, uh, Katie, who had the, uh, the closest marks on what the classifier was going to do. I, I told my husband this morning that he was going to have to tell her not to take bribes for, I mean, not that she would. But, you know, not necessarily that we wanted the highest uh, classification, but that certain people might be lobbying for very specific point values on, on a certain animals. So that's kind of the update. So that requires a little bit of extra Cleanup. Uh, there was some clipping going on just to make sure tails and udders were a little bit cleaner and neater than normal. And yeah, I guess that's it. Report cards came in this week, so you know that leads to some discussions based on uh, how things are going. And I think that's it. I don't know, Katie. What do you have any updates from my house? I can't remember. I will say, Katie, my kids have gotten much chattier since you left. I didn't realize that they were they had gone almost mute, um, but all of a sudden they're talking again. So clearly, your presence meant that they uh, they stopped talking.
0: Your daughter was a delight. I don't think the boys managed to speak more than two sentences each to <laughs> yeah. me in the time I was yeah. there. But, you know, for, like I remember as a kid, it's awkward when your parents have people over, and especially someone you don't know, and especially when they just like stay at your house
1: take your room
0: um so yeah take your room and make you deal with your little brother and
1: i will say that i especially my youngest i feel like i've said it before he's a bit of a covid kid um if he never had to leave the house he would be perfectly happy so i think that having you know almost two years worth of No activities, limited school, you know, being really quite sheltered. Here, a lot of things were locked down for a long time. Between the ages, you know, for him, between the ages of five and seven, it's definitely impacted how he interacts with the world. So that's something that we're going to have to work on. It's in my head anyway, so we'll see what happens there. Maybe he's just an introvert like me. Who knows?
0: Yeah as an adult who happily celebrated Maida's birthday by leaving it introvert o'clock, which for anyone who's seen the videos was before the Garth Brooks serenade. Um, I, I totally get not wanting to talk to people and especially <laughs> not strangers who show up at my house. So, you know, um, for our listeners, Arlene, reasonably asked me not to take a photo, but I'm gonna set up my own once I get home and I will take a photo of that. But she has a genius idea for all that random shit that accumulates everywhere. The little little things, you know. She has one of those what like a like a plastic five drawer. Yeah, I don't know, like whatever, a Rubbermaid right?
1: or whatever. Those, those are like craft drawers or yeah. The, yeah, like a disposable set of drawers, kind of not disposable, but yeah,
0: plastic. Yeah. And each of the kids, although in our family it will be the kids plus the adults because we have fewer kids and more adults and more little crap, I would guess, um, has a labeled drawer for their little crap. And I love this idea because a lot of times I don't want to put stuff away. It's, you know, it's a two inch tall doll that my child is going to demand the minute they get home. But I don't want them all living in the middle of my dining room table or on the kitchen counters or in the bathroom, which seems to be where everything accumulates. So I'm loving the idea of just giving everyone one space where all their random shit can be found.
1: And then when someone says, where's my insert item, you can just say, check your drawer. And... Hopefully it's there. Yeah,
0: Because it's easy to pick up the big toys and the big shit, but when it's like a magazine for my husband. That that little
1: handful of screws or bolts or whatever that gets dropped on the table. I'm sure there's an intention for it, but I don't know what it is or where it should end up.
0: Well, and the girl child makes a lot of art at daycare, which is awesome. But like, Two weeks ago, she cut out a paper hamster, which is fine. And then she cut out a very large amount of what amounted to confetti as hamster food. And like a little hamster blanket, and then a little cat, and then some cat food. And so she comes home with what I finally tossed into a quart baggie, and it was almost a quart baggie's worth, of tiny pieces of paper, that cannot be disposed of, which is, is totally fine, but that come home loose and just get dumped out. Yeah. Don't move them. And, yeah. You know, I've got two little kids and five cats and two dogs. Like, tiny pieces of paper is never going to work in yeah, our house. That's right. So, I'm loving the bin idea. Also, Arlene, the Women's Food and Ag Network is accepting... Mentor and mentee applications, Um, I believe still primarily in Iowa and Ohio, but I know that they have had participants from West Virginia and pending funding other places um, for their Harvesting Our Potential program, which sets experienced producers up with newer producers or experienced farmers who are looking to grow and learn which is exactly how this podcast got started. Um, They are looking for applicants for this year's Harvesting Our Potential Pool, and the website is... I lost it. WFAM.org. So that's WF as in Frank, A as in Ayrshire, N as in Nigerian Dwarf Goat.org.
1: Alright, so we are going to move ahead into our interview, and this is one of Katie's like, send out an email and see what happens, and you know what, when you have a podcast, sometimes you send an email, ask someone who you admire to come on to your show, and they just say yes, which is like the wildest thing, but one of the best parts about uh, having a podcast. So, hope you enjoy this interview. Today we are talking to Dr. John Madigan, who's a professor at the University of California Davis. And, Dr. Madigan, we start each of our interviews with the same question for all of our guests. And this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we always ask, what are you growing? So for our farming guests, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also cover families, businesses, careers, all kinds of other stuff. So we'll ask you the same question. What are you growing?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to sharing some information. So I guess... uh, uh, I'm not doing crops. I, uh, we have a couple of horses here at the house, and uh, have a, uh, I'm a uh, faculty emeriti from the University of California School of Veterinary Medicine, and uh, they gave me the rights to one of the inventions that I have, so I have a technical rescue company where we design equipment for first responders to uh, pull animals out of difficult situations, equine, cattle, and others, and, uh, and so we do trainings for that my past experience with i uh, had a lot of experience with uh, uh rescue and emergencies things and uh, then i'm also uh, uh revising the uh, fourth edition of my manual of equine neonatal medicine and uh, so i have a, a lot of activity in the world of uh, baby horses and uh, breeders and foaling and then uh, i do a lot with the uh, with the invention that uh, came out of some of our research uh, and I don't mind that they called it the uh, Madigan squeeze. Once I found out it actually worked. And uh, so that's a uh, procedure to uh, uh, that we work for with so what we call dummy foals. And we can talk about that if you want. And uh, so I spent a lot of time doing podcasts and explaining stuff, but it's a way to recreate birth canal pressures, which allows a, a calf that doesn't know its mother or a, that's wandering around the stall, or a lamb, a pig, a cria, and it's very similar to kangaroo mother care, where there's a dramatic increase in survival with the swaddling, and we use the uh, the squeezing thing. It's, uh, so I can talk more about that, but that's uh, that's occupying a lot of my activities and growing, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. That does sound a lot of di- like a lot of different things are growing. So I'm guessing that the horse people always want to know how many horses and what are you doing with them? The ones that you actually uh, have on site. Yeah.
2: yeah, Right now we just have two here. And uh, uh, so right now we're just doing uh, trail riding and then we go to some ranch friends and move some cows around uh, once in a while just for fun. And uh, they're quarter horses. They're very gentle. They live, uh, a very life of uh, luxury here, and uh, we just build a new barn and uh, uh, with a little place to stay. And you can see the horses out the window and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, the and I uh, and we use the horses to uh, practice some of our technical rescue equipment fitting. So they're uh, <laughs> they go in the stall where they eat a cookie, and uh, we see how things fit the uh, the, the horses.
1: Right, yeah. So you're not actually doing rescues, but just making sure everything uh, <laughs> fits on them.
2: Yeah, I haven't had to rescue them yet, although we've been in a few pickles, but uh, I haven't had to use our equipment.
0: So how do you deal with the level of cute that is working with baby animals just all the time? I mean, obviously you see a lot of sick and unhappy babies too, but I would think that the, the general cute percentage is probably higher than yeah there
2: yeah when we it's easy for us when they're cute that means they're for us to feel like uh, that that's a pretty cool thing they're they're feeling good you know they're looking at you moving around so they they've recovered and uh so that's good and then when we see them uh they're disoriented recumbent uh flopping around uh, that kind of thing. So the, uh, the cuteness doesn't fit at that moment. It, it comes, okay. Uh, what's the matter? Make a diagnosis, uh, figure out a treatment and then, uh, you know, proceed from there. But it, it makes it, it it's sure a lot of fun. And then when you turn what the, one of these foals that been upside down and doesn't know his mother and wandering around and then they're out running around the field and there he's following his mom and doing stuff. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's a good reward system.
0: So I'm going to rearrange a few questions here. I actually found you through Instagram. Somebody was demonstrating using the Madigan squeeze on a calf on their farm, and it wasn't something I had heard of. And as a, as a livestock producer myself, I raise beef cattle and lambs, and Arlene has dairy cattle. Um, I've certainly dealt with some lambs that didn't do real well. After birth, more than calves um so i'm wondering if you can tell us some about the madigan squeeze and my big question was how sure you were were you that it was going to work the first time you tried it were you like pretty sure or was it one of those like well it can't hurt because you know i know there's some things we try as farmers just because it's worth trying something but
2: you know yeah yeah, it's it's one of the most common questions I get is, uh, you know, it really starts with, well, how did you decide you were going to try this? And then, uh, you know, what was the first time you used it? And then what's the science behind it? So uh, there's a bit of a story with it. So I guess with a podcast, that's an okay thing. So I, I started the neonatal intensive care unit at UC Davis in the mid 80s, and it was uh third one in the United States. And at that point, when foals would come in, we didn't know how to hook them up to IV fluids and give them glucose, electrolytes and things like that. And then still be able to keep them with their mother and then treat them with antibiotics and and things like that and oxygen and and all that. So I saw the critical care aspect and we said, what a, a big part of our teaching load was this thing called the maladjustment or dummy foal. And at that point, the, uh, the, what the experts said, I am board-certified in internal medicine, so I'll my, throw myself in that category. We all, the, the word was that this was due to low oxygen. But as the time went by, I saw that uh, these foals, if you did intensive care, they would all of a sudden wake up uh, two, three, five days into the care, which is expensive and not everybody can do it. They'd wake up and they'd have no residual neurologic deficits whatsoever. So that doesn't happen when your brain is injured to the extent that we're seeing these abnormal behaviors and seizures and things like that. So I thought something else is going on. So what? Uh, what we? Uh, I was in New Zealand and um, on sabbatic, and they were working with this project on: Is it humane to cut the tail off of a newborn lamb? Do they feel things? And can you uh, castrate them? Can you do things? So they had a big welfare thing. So they'd meet the European standards for export of lambs, you know, that they were raising them right and everything. So these guys were doing a lot of science. And they said, and I just snuck into a seminar because I, I had time there. And the guy, they were talking about these uh, sedative progesterone derivatives. And I knew about progesterone, of course, when we think of pregnant mares and whatnot. And, and, uh, but I didn't know that it fed into a pathway to produce sedation. Uh, big-time sedation, almost like Valium or a barbiturate or even anesthesia. So uh, I remembered a graph that a guy in England had done in the uh, late 80s, and he showed that some of these dummy foals had elevated progesterone. He was just measuring stuff. And uh, so I thought, whoa, well, when I get back home, I'm going to measure that in some of these dummy foals. So we did, and uh, it was sky-high. So that we knew that they were endogenously producing this progesterone that was feeding into the brain center that controls sedation and consciousness. And the reason for that is if you're a hundred-pound foal or eighty-pound foal in utero, uh one of the one of the rules is you don't gallop in the womb. But guess what? Two hours later, you better be doing it or the predator's gonna get you. So there has to be quite a switch switch in consciousness that occurs at birth. So what is that? Is, is it light? Is it sound? Is it touch? You know, you can do a rectal exam on a pregnant mirror and bump that foal and it'll wiggle around, but he's not waking up. So uh, anyway, so that was uh, something to ponder. We just knew that these dummy foals were full of these and they call them neuro steroids because the progesterone a steroid and it feeds into this pathway and it's made in the brain and whatnot. And, so it was a failure to transition, you know, the consciousness from in the, in the womb to the external life. And it was in the foal. I, I wasn't thinking of other animals at that time. So I had a separate project where we were trying to do a master's project for a student and get it done. And, and when you when you hold on to a, a foal that's in the newborn category, say 12, 24 hours, veterinarians and horse owners know this. You, you want to do something with them and you put your arm around the front of them, around the back and you hold them tight. They flop. Their head drops and they go down and it's called the flopping reaction been described. So we had a neurologist, uh, Dr. Monica Allman, who was working with us. We said, let's figure out the mechanism of that. So the reason this ties in is that she was doing electrical recordings of brain wave in the foal when we would uh, put the pressure on them and they'd flop. She said, I need 20 minutes to get this recording done. And hell, I can't hold them. We couldn't get anybody to hold. So I remembered this loop uh, uh, restraint thing that they use in cattle to lay them down. It's from the early 1900s. It's been around a long time, two half hitches over the thorax, something around the, the chest. You pull on a cattle will lay down. So we tried it in the foal, full, full laid down, did it for 20 minutes. And, uh, at the, and then we measured all kinds of different things. And since we were measuring the neurosteroids in the, in the dummy pole, I said we want to publish this, so measure it before measure it after. Well, what happened is when we got the data, number one, the brainwave showed that they go immediately into sleep when you put this thing on and that's so that, and when they go through the birth canal. Uh, that's a good idea because you got two legs and a nose in a miracle presentation that the mirror rolls and puts it into position. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And if you're doing that, you sure as hell don't want them wiggling and moving back around and everything. So the squeeze immobilizes them. And then at the end of our 20-minute experiment, uh, we saw that some of these neurosteroids shifted around a little bit. So, so I'm driving home one day and I'm thinking, I wonder, You know, 20 minutes is the stage duration of stage two labor of the mare. So when she gets a foal in position, the water breaks. It's 20 minutes that the foal goes through that squeezing thing. And then all of a sudden it wakes up. So I thought, Jesus, I wonder, wonder if there, if that, you know, if some, and then I remember this, you know, that some of these foals that come in their dummies, they've had quick birth or they've been pulled. So. I get a call so get back to, this is a long answer to your question, how do you know when you first had it? So here's what happens is when you're in veterinary medicine and you have people and clients, they have your cell phone. So I'm not on duty. I'm sitting in my office in, the, in the, this breeder and she's uh, Ellen Jackson. She won't mind me mentioning her name. She's a owner, operator, plus a racehorse trainer, magnificent individual, folds out 80, 90 uh, mares a year there. And so she calls me and towards the end of the season. She goes, Hey, I got a dummy foal here and it's the end of the season. I'm exhausted. I can't spend any money on him bringing in. He's been upside down in the feeder. He's eight hours old. And somebody said you were doing research. Have you got something cheap that I can just give him? And, uh, cause I, I, I just can't nurse one of these things along for a few hours or send them in for a few days and send them in. So I said, Oh, well, what was the birth like, Ellen? And she says, oh, it was normal. I said, well, you know, you have to sometimes cross-examine your uh, your clients. And I said, well, uh, what was normal? How fast was it? She said, oh, man, I was in the kitchen, and the full alert went off. I went out there. He was standing up. Oh, a quick birth. Yes. And so a quick birth, you know, the birth. So I'm sitting there, and I said, well, you want to try something different? She said, as long as it won't hurt him, and it won't cost me anything. I think your farm, you know, listeners will identify with that particular, you know, desire. So I said, yeah, have you got a rope? And she said, hell yes, I got a rope. So I drive down there, no drugs, no medicine, no nothing on this neonatal call. And I get there and he's again trying to get upside down in the feeder, flopping around. And aimlessly, she's trying to stick a bottle in his mouth. He takes a little bit of milk and whatnot. So I put this squeeze thing on him. He lays down, goes to sleep. And here's when I knew something happened. As soon as you, I release these ropes, and then all these folds, they'll, they'll and if you're doing it to a normal fold, like we did a research thing, as soon as you release that pressure, it's like going out of the burst canal. They just pop right up, they stand, they stretch, they, like they've been asleep. So this guy, he, I let the rope off, he stands up, and for the first time in eight hours, he knickers. <laughs> to his mother and the guy that's holding the bear just about gets knocked over because she hears this from the foal, which is supposed to happen, you know, as part of the bonding. So she just bumps this guy out of the way and goes over and starts licking her, licking the baby. So I figured uh, something happened here and man, it was fast. So then I look over in the, in the owner, Ellen, she just think, and she told me later what she was thinking. If you crash, I call Madigan out here to wake the foal up, and now he's got him laying out even flatter, going to sleep. You know what the <laughs> hell is going on here? You know she's very practical, and so she's over milking the mare because she said I have a stomach tube, so you can tube him while you're here. You know because she just seen him go to sleep. I said, well, why, why don't we leave a little milk there and just see what happens from it? So he goes over and starts nursing. And she's just looking at me like, oh my God, why didn't I have this 20 years ago? I've been, you know, dah, dah, dah. So that, it was dramatic. And then uh, it was towards the end of our falling season. So I had another uh, veterinary friend in Australia, Dr. Elizabeth Woolsey, and she had a 48 hour foal referred in there. And she said, hey, I you, you mentioned something about this, you know, squeezing thing. And so she does it, he gets up in eight minutes, she's nursing and they've been 48 hours of around-the-clock care. So we started doing it, and that that was the start of it.
0: So how far out after birth does the squeeze work?
2: Well, the cattle people are teaching us something here because we didn't do this experiment in cattle, but they have to do the same thing. They can't, you know, poke a hole in the uterus, you know, while they're in utero. they got to go through the birth canal, and then some of these things, they do wander around. They're off the suck and whatnot. So what we know in the foals, out for about five to seven days, this will work. But if you're not taking care of them in there, they're going to be septic and hypoglycemic and, you know, not, not – anyway. So, it, so it usually we're doing this within the first three days, and now people are catching on, so they do it early but I'll have uh, some of these uh, things. If you go to Facebook or Google and put in Madigan Squeeze and Calf, th- these wonderful videos from the farmers, you know, uh, the, one of my favorites is the uh, the wife is filming with the two kids next door looking through a crack in the barn, you know, window there, and in the, in the, her husband's out there with a warm jacket on, and she says, he won't give up on that calf. He's using the esophageal feeder, and it's day six now. And I told him, hey, I heard about this thing on the Internet, and then I, you know, so he's going to try it. So, so the kids are all watching. She's watching. So he's out there. He puts it on, and he's in his jacket, and then the cow is on the other side of the the, the panel. And so he lets go of the rope, and that calf walks over there and tries to get in. he opens the gate. And it starts nursing, you know, the kids go, wow, well, you know, this is great. So anyway, that one was uh, five to seven days that, uh, you know, they've been sticking with it.
0: Yeah, it's, I'd have to say that tube feeding a baby more than once or twice is about the most frustrating damn thing in the world. So if there's something that'll, you know, perk them back up, it's... Yeah, I assume that foals are like lambs. That the longer they go without food, the stupider they get too. Because lambs just, you know, yeah. they get real no, dumb take real them. fast,
2: yeah. real fast. And uh, the group in Oregon at the uh, Oregon State University at the vet school, and then with the ag division there, they just uh, uh, wrote a uh, did a study, and I think they had eighty or ninety. Lambs in each group, the ones with the abnormal behavior, and then the control group, and they concluded that when they used the squeeze procedure, it rapidly corrected the uh, the lambs' misguided mental stuff, and they started to nurse. And uh, they did ones that were seizing. They had a whole, there's a nice category you can see if you go lambs and they called it the thoracic squeeze in the title. And so you can see that. And then they did it in uh, in uh, New Zealand, because I communicated this, you know, back to them. And they had a C-section lab for the at the vet school. So they did, you know, a cow and they did C-section. Well, some of them were kind of early, so they bypassed the birth canal. And then two of the, I think they did seven in the lab, two of them weren't nursing at all. So they did the squeeze and they went over and, you know, started nursing. And then they've done uh, some, I've done some stuff uh, with the failure to thrive uh, pigs, as well these little guys that that wiggle around and get pushed away and then they start fading uh they can wake up again
1: yeah i was just wondering if there's any risk factors associated with with the procedure or um you know if people can mess it up because <laughs> we we can always find ways to mess things up
2: yeah it uh the only contradiction would be and it's in the folds if they have fractured ribs and uh if they've had a quick birth, that's unlikely because they're, that means that they're, you know, they're pretty big. And, uh, so that, that would be it. Uh, um, it's, it, it's a short procedure. Uh, the thoracic thing, if they're in respiratory distress and cyanotic and truly asphyxiated, it's not going to do anything if there's really brain damage as opposed to a persistence of these hormones that are keeping them asleep. So, and, and, all the data shows back to the dummy foal is 20% do not recover, even in the best intensive care. Well, those are really asphyxiated, brain damaged uh, foals, and uh, they're not going to get better. So um, eight out of 10 will, but that, that, the eight out of 10 are the ones that, that somebody brought into the clinic or the vet comes twice a day, and not everybody can do that for, you know, two to seven, five, seven days it's, it's uh so the fact that, you know, you could, there's a lot of ways to put this thoracic pressure on. We have a little harness that we use in the clink, but I, they, they said, why don't you sell that and market that? And I said, well, I'm afraid people are going to think you need this damn special harness rather than a rope that you can just put a half hitch around. So we're not going to, we're not going to even show that in the pictures. So we stick with the rope and I hear some people worried about putting a rope around there, but yeah, I mean, they, some of my veterinarians say, oh, I just sit on them now. I just sit, you know, on top of them and uh, whatnot. So, no, it's, it, and there's so many videos of how to do it. Like, you can find one. I have my manual, Bequine Neonatal website, and it's got, you know, very easy step-by-step, you know, ways to do it. And you'll know you're doing it right if the foal lays down and you just keep enough pressure on. People say how much pressure is. Just keep some tension on there. If they start to wake up, pull it a little harder. And it's like having an untrained dog, which I'm very familiar with, out on a walk, and they're kind of pulling on you. It's about that much pressure.
0: Does it matter um, how big a rope you use compared to the size of the animal? I'm no. Trying to, okay. I'm trying to pick. No,
2: fingers. you can. You want something that slides and produces some compression loss uh, the dorsal part uh, over the back, and then under the sternum, and uh, so you know, a medium-sized rope and without ridges on it. So it'll slide, you know, is easy. And there is a company, I think it's Equine Reproduction Products or something, and they have a rope that has a hondo in it. So you don't have to, the rope would normally go, you know, over the shoulder between the front legs. And then it comes up to the withers, goes over the back, put the rope underneath it. That's called a half hitch. Then you go over the back put it underneath that, and then you pull the long extension out behind the foal, have somebody holding it wide, then it just gradually, easily lays down. And it's used now in normal foals in vet med, where you got to do an ultrasound, or you got to put an IV catheter in, or you got to run some plasma. The foal goes to sleep, you put a blindfold on him, the mare knows the foal's asleep, you let her just stand right there. And you can do a lot of procedures in the foal, uh, except that they they have a reduction in their pain response, which we determined in the experiment. They're they're asleep, not anesthetized, so you can you can wake them up if you get, you know poke them too hard. But they do have an increase in endorphins, and uh, so they they tolerate a little bit of uh, things that they normally wouldn't.
0: Say so this sounds promising, even for having to poke at a calf. Because the nice part about lambs is you can you know pick them up and do stuff, but having to hold on to a calf while somebody does something to
2: him is a little more,
0: a little more challenging yeah. sometimes.
2: Yeah. No, they'll, they'll lay down. It makes it a hell of a lot easier.
0: Yeah. It's as the one who's always holding on to him. you know, I have a, <laughs> I have a vested interest in making this easier. Yeah. Um, so did you grow up on a farm or how did you end up in, in vet medicine in the first place?
2: Well, I, uh, No, I actually uh, grew up in San Francisco, and then uh, my sister liked to ride, and so my mother bought her this horse that turned out to be kind of a runaway, and and they kept it in Golden Gate Fields, and so for some reason, I started riding it. I guess I was 12 or 13, and and the police barn was right there, and so the horse would every once in a while take off and run me through an intersection, and then I would turn it up into the trees and stop it, and I wasn't phased too much by that. And then the police officers were on their mounted patrol. They said, hey, kid, uh, come on down to our place. <laughs> we we want to show you a few things. So I started doing that, and then I was riding my sister's horse so much they bought me one. Then we moved to Woodside to have the horses, and I got a job on a uh, children's camp and guest ranch when I was 15 I had to misrepresent my age, uh, as being a little older and then, uh, where you taught kids riding and then played, you know, I did some roping and then I met a guy that played polo was a veterinarian. That's how I got into veterinary medicine, uh, Bill Linfoot. And he was, he was a nine goal polo player. So I, and I started playing polo, but I was really impressed by him and he convinced me. I, if I hadn't uh, gotten a B in metal shop, I wouldn't have graduated from high school. So I had to really uh, change some of my uh, uh, study habits, and uh, and then had to be motivated. And so he was a mentor for me, and uh, and I, I, I he did wild horse breaking, and uh, he he was really a hand, and uh, he could get on a horse in forty five minutes, rope it, and then approach it and do all the things, and it's that's all caught on this natural horsemanship. But he was. He was superb at it, but I I noticed how he would focus on that horse. So I had attention deficit disorder. So when I was in class, I'd watch my instructor like a, like a, he watched these wild horse, and then I my GPA my first year of uh, junior college was one point seven, and then after I did this, I had a three point six six, and uh, so that that was how. Then I I had to really work hard to get into vet school because I had such bad academics.
0: I think it really says something no to the power of finding the right thing for you you know that yeah as someone who also um has adhd that you know if you find that thing that interests you enough and you find the right folks to encourage you at it you can do just about anything but until you find that it can be a mess and it's still a lot of work after that so yep one of, the thing, yeah, one of the things
1: you talked about at the beginning was your work in uh, disaster and emergency response involving large animals and doing rescues. So is it just being in California that leads you into that field or is there there's something else? I mean, f- being from places where there are, you know, not really any risks of fires or earthquakes, um, you know, we feel more safe, I suppose, where we live. But what else led you into to that part of, of your work?
2: Yeah. Well, when I, when I, uh, graduated from vet school, I went into private practice in Mendocino County and, um, I ended up discovering this infectious disease up there that was considered very rare in horses and, uh, only been 16 in the world. And then I see the, saw, started diagnosing a lot of them and ended up getting recalled. The university offered me a job and, in uh, back, uh, back at the, at the school of veterinary medicine, Um uh, and I had a master's because it took me so long to get into vet school. So when I first went there, we got all these really difficult cases. Recumbent horses would come in. In other words, down horses, you know, they'd be in a wreck, fall off a cliff or do stuff. And they'd come into the clinic. So I was in a referral practice. Well, we had terrible slings. So I started working with a welder friend of mine in private practice, Charlie Anderson. We developed this sling. It's called the Anderson sling. And after named after charlie and so i started you know taking care of a lot of horses lifting them putting them in slings and you know helping them that way and then i got a call from uh, this organization there were uh, five mules and one horse at the sierras at eight thousand feet this in 1992 and and uh they were gonna a big snowstorm was coming in and so they they couldn't get to them with uh they airlifted the people out that get caught on this path so they said a hey, uh they made a call to the school. So the Dean sent the call to me and I said, well, sure. I, you know, we can, we could, you know, put them attached to a helicopter and fly them out of there. And then they said, have you done that? I said, well, no, but uh, you know, what's the difference between a hook that's on a helicopter, a hook that's on the top of the beam in our barn. You know, I, I, I know this equipment, they're not getting out of it. I know that. So I don't care whether it's, you know, what the hook's on. And they go, oh, okay. So anyway, I so so I did that and we were successful and there was a tremendous amount of publicity with a video of the, full, you know, the mule in the air and landing and they, we landed at a ski resort. We had another team there on him, and then we came back and got another one. So, so then there was a big flood in 97. So I, I, I'd been getting calls from fire departments, emergency place. Hey, we can't get this horse out of here. Can you do that airlift? Yeah, okay. So when the flood happened, I called this veterinary friend of mine up there in Yuba City when the levee broke in ninety seven with this atmospheric river like we we had recently, and uh, and I said, "You need any help?" He said, "Yeah." The animal control went underwater, so they took my clinic over. So they're all here, and I'm hearing about all these animals that are stuck. I said, "Well, you want us to come up?" He said, "Hell yeah, come up." You know, so. I started doing that and then, geez, you know, we're going out in boats and, you know, getting dogs and horses and, you know, you know, tying them to to the back of a boat when they're swimming, they get scared, they get off this high spot and you tow them to a levee and make them stand with their head out of the water and things like that. So since I done a lot of cowboy stuff, it was just easy, you know, for me uh, to do relative to some others, I guess, that, that you know, it, it just anyways, just kind of a personality thing and uh so then the governor has this big deal and you know thanks everybody and then all of a sudden I'm on the California animal response emergency system training you know uh committee (laughs) committee. so all of a sudden I'm you know you know in this disaster thing but I've been there done that and so I have some ideas so that's how I got started. And then our students wanted to do it. So I would, you know, uh, they thought we were much more organized than we were. They said, God, you guys respond. Well, you know, when I get a call, I walk through the barn. Are you busy? No. Okay. You know, we didn't have a call out list or anything. They, they had really no idea it was, you know, okay. Anybody, is anybody using that truck? Okay. Let's get it. So, It was that kind of thing that got me into uh, the emergency stuff. Then it got very, very organized. So our school of vet med, a veterinary emergency response team, we have 90 students in it and uh, I started that. And then I helped write the legislation for the Cal vet program. We got $3 million a year uh, to that program every year to coordinate with the California department of food and ag and do trainings, get counties up to speed and things like that. What equipment do they need? And then have a coordinated response. So I'm not doing that. I just helped kind of lay some groundwork for it.
1: Sure. Have there been recent rescues with the, I mean, we've been hearing about the the flooding in California as of late. Have there been a lot of animal rescues that have been required? Oh yeah. 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 They've been busy.
2: Well, yeah, there's been, there, there, there's a lot of movement of animals. I, there hasn't been any uh, dramatic things that I'm aware of. What, 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 when, when you know something's coming like these storms, you know, it, it it's now. It's not like oh, gee, I never thought this was going to happen. So after all these years with the wildfires and now with the, with the flooding and everything, there's these county animal emergency response teams, and none of that existed when we you know, got the first call for that. We didn't have any of that. So we don't, uh, there was a rescue on the Tevis cup with uh, a horse had to get airlifted out of there and they used our equipment and protocols and, and, uh, things like that. But, uh, with the floods, there's always, you know, horses that are in water that people have to wait out and get, but people are getting smarter here and they do things in advance and they move the animals, uh, you know, to higher ground or to, neighbors and whatnot, especially with a little advance warning that something big is happening.
0: So, Dr. Madigan, can you describe some of the equipment that you've created? Because I know, you know, we see a lot of animal welfare videos, you know, decrying hip lifts and that, and I don't think that non-livestock folks get how big cattle and horses are, and that you can't just Grab them because they've got you know bones and squishy yeah. internal bits and and that they move you know which really yeah. makes it harder than picking up a car or something you know they're not you can't just grab them
2: yeah and then so when it happens to a cow or rancher it doesn't happen every day so they're a low frequency event mm-hmm. but they're and then we call that high hazard too because it things can go wrong for the animal or the people responding. And so in the fire department, if they respond, whether it's a ranch or a fire department, they have the same thing. It's a low frequency, high hazard event. So the experience that we had, like with this Anderson sling, I had to give a talk. So we pulled up the records. It'd been used in 3,500 horses since we invented it. So we have a hell of a lot of experience about you know how to do this stuff. So That's a good sling, but it's hard to get on a recumbent patient, a a down horse, or a down cow, or anything underneath it. It's got so many buckles and straps and everything. So then the next invention I had was called the large animal lift. That's commercially available with another company, not mine. And it slides underneath them and has a bar over the top of it. And that that's an okay piece of equipment. It's about twenty eight hundred bucks. The Anderson sling's about fourteen thousand or twelve. No, excuse me, six thousand. And so there's a bit of an investment. So you, so I mean, being a practical guy, you know, said two things. One, it's got to be accessible equipment at the time you need it. You've got to be. It's got to be easy to put on, and you've got. It's got to be portable. So we, the thing that we have now is called this loops rescue system. It's in a duffel bag that you can carry, and then it has a guidebook in there where. If you take the time to read this or do one training with it, it, it the, a person stands behind the back of the horse or the cow, and then you read reads to the person, throw the loop over the upper front leg, pull it towards you, then put the loop over the cow or the horse's head, pull it around you. Now that's step one. Step two. Dip, dip, dip. So the fire department guys, they read to each other. It's like pulling AED for a defibrillator. You pull it off the wall. They they tell you everything. Walk to the patient, you know, then open the shirt or whatever, you know, put the pedal. So this guidebook, step by step, so, because I could see our students can remember if you don't, if you only do it intermittently, you're not good at it. So this thing, yeah, it it's very simplified and there's no knots. It's a continuous loop, so. I just pondered this, and then uh, Dr. Alm and I were with one of our horses. We were out here because you don't want to put it under their arm and then lift them up because the brachial plexus is there. So we figured out if you pass it over the head and go crisscross under the sternum, it lifts by the skeletal system. Whether it's a cow, a horse, a giraffe, we have one for giraffes that's a little longer straps, and uh, we have an inflatable giraffe to practice at the zoos. You know, with how to how to pull a giraffe around and things like that. And uh, so that's the, it's called the loops rescue system. It's uh, on the internet and uh, my son and I distribute it, do the training and uh, it's less than $500. So that's the advantage. And it has everything we think uh, somebody needs and it doesn't take up a lot of space in a fire truck. So the other thing is uh, one of the guys, the office of Marine service, they're getting it NFPA approved for the fire department's. So they can use their federal funds to, to grab, you know, to purchase it. And uh, like I'm a, I'm doing a training in Illinois this month. I'm going to do it over the internet. Cause it's uh, I've worked with some of the guys there, so they know it, but they're going to train uh, their, their first responders. And then they're going to train some of the rural fire department guys. Cause you've got a horse sticking his head out with some ice and everything. It's hard to get in there on the bud. So we have a real practical Approach, And we think you can do about 85, 90% of what you need to do out of this duffel bag compared to having a rescue trailer with hooks, snaps and guideposts, you know, and all, all this stuff, with which is behind a lock gate on a Sunday where somebody doesn't have the key and the person, there's one person on duty and they're an hour away looking for a lost dog and you've got to wait with a horse or a cow flopping around stuck somewhere. So you have to have accessible equipment. That means it has to be affordable, and it has to be able to have an instruction guide in it. So that's been the guiding principles for that.
0: Well, I know one of my husband's friend's boys was in a tractor rollover this fall, and thank God was not killed. But realizing how far away the equipment is to deal with something like that really drives home the importance of being able to do something like throwing a duffel bag in the back of a truck instead of having to go you know, it was an hour and a half drive to get the equipment they needed to get everything back up the hill and off him. And that was, oh,
2: yeah. Oh stuff. no, it, exactly right. And, uh, you know, if you're on a pack trip and the horse gets in the mud, you can have, you know, I, I do some lectures in the mountains in Craig London at his pack station there in the Sierras. He has one and, uh, one of these kits and, and, uh, if you have it in a horse trailer at a barn, you can grab it, and and you know horses, down is dead for them, so they they fight like hell. They, and then all these secondary, and by the time you get there with equipment in two three hours, they're in another bad, further bad state. Yeah. I was
0: going to say, it says a lot about your horsemanship that you've done this many rescues and haven't been killed. So,
2: yeah, I think that somebody was asking, somebody was asking me. They go, hey, uh, how'd you get this protocol when we were doing the airlift of mules? Because the packer couldn't go in. There was only so much room in the helicopter. And then we had the other guy that was doing the lifting helicopter. And uh, so he said, a couple of those mules don't like just everybody that they see, you know. And so we had to walk them out in the snow. Where So the, the helicopter came in with a long line. And then we had to put the frame over the top of them. So we started blindfolding them. You know, because we learned that that, and the and then when we've done trainings up the Marine Mount Warfare, you know, the, the 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 Marine guys, they're like, oh, here's a college professor to show us what to do, you know, and and so they go, well, you can catch if you can, you know, put this on Freddie, you know, you can use anything here, and they go, well, where's Freddie? Oh, we got him in the squeeze chute, so we can put the halter on him, you know. So I go, oh, okay, so I put Freddie out on the tarback. After we got the halter on I mean, him, he 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 was really an expert at kicking. But we blindfolded him, and then he tried to kick and he fell down and he couldn't see what happened. And he got back up and he thought, "Damn, I tell you, these guys are tough. I better stand still." So yeah, there, I've been—you got to have a little savvy, you know, sense cowboy stuff where no, nope, we better not do that. We better stand here or wait a second. I was on a trail ride, and a friend of mine was trying to go up out of the water, and there'd been a big. Change in the river, and his horse fell backwards with him, and he got his ra- his foot over the rein, and the rein was over the horn of the saddle, so the horse was stuck and he was flailing around, and the guy barely got out of this. It was ten feet of water or so where he's where the horse moved in. So I galloped up to see where he is, helped him get out, and I'm watching this horse flop around, and I. So getting back to just instinct, I remember when you get your, you know, lifesaver thing, they go, wait for the person to quit struggling and then grab. Him. So this horse just went under the water. And then I walked out and stuck his head out and he'd held his breath. He blew a bunch of water out of his nose, believe it or not. And then he just like a, like a sort of a submerged boat that was on its side. I could just drag him to the edge and got my pocket knife out and cut his rein off of the horn. And he stood up. But if I tried to, you know, jump in anyway, it's, yeah, you got to, you got to have that sixth sense to like a kind of like a uh, rodeo clown
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know a lot about how the fire service works and i'm in canada so i mean it's probably a different system but are there ways that we as farmers could advocate to get our fire departments to have that gear on site or are there programs to to <laughs> to kind of put a bit of pressure on to make sure that those things are available if we should need them. Because I know in some places there aren't a lot of farms, but you're also depending on those people to help you out when you need it.
2: Yeah. Well, a lot of these communities do have, you know, the, uh, well, in California, they named California, the, uh, county animal response teams. Well, when you're really rural, and you 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 know that if you got a problem, then you, you you get a group of people that say, well, if you have a problem, here's a call call list, and uh, you know we'll we'll drop what we're doing and and you know go over there, uh, go to the site. So a lot of times it's through the volunteer fire departments. That's where you know they go, and then they have to respond because they'll be. They get these animal calls all the time. I mean, if you go to Google and look at fire department and horse rescue, there'll be some horse pulled out of this or that every week. So I think there's two things that it's one is that you get a little training and you should train with something that's very simple. And then you should have it be affordable so that it's not a, you know, it's not, you'll you'll pull the trigger on it because you're not going to use it very often. And uh, I think if you start with that and then send one of your guys, if you we do these trainings periodically and they learn how to do it, then what we do is we have a PowerPoint and a disk that gives all the background on the different equipment you can use and why you might want to use this and the limitations of all the things. And then the steps to do it in the mud, in the water, off the edge, pulling backwards, pulling forward. And you can actually they can give that PowerPoint after they've been to one of these trainings and show the other people how to do it. And, it, and that's the, you know, in vet med, they used to say, uh, okay, uh, here's what you're going to do is uh, w- watch one, do one, teach one, you know, so it's a little bit like that, but it has to be simple, practical, and then have a reminder system, which is this little booklet. It's not on a damn app. It's in print, it's it's uh, waterproof, coffee-proof, <laughs> manure-proof, you know, so that you can go, okay, we're going to pull them backwards, so okay, stand here, tell me, which leg do I throw this damn thing over? Okay, yeah, and then you can stretch these out, there's four loops in there, so you can pull, for. Well, you can put six, eight people on the end of this after you attach it to the front or the back of the cow or the horse, and you can loop these together, and then there's another six feet, another six feet, and you'd get a whole pile of people and give a yank on this thing if you can't get your equipment there. So that's all kind of, you know, that just comes from the cowboy up stuff that I grew up with.
0: Well, it's good to see, too, you know, animal handling equipment that's built for when things are going wrong because it seems like so much of what we see is, well, it'll work great as long as, this horse is stuck somewhere on dry, flat cement, you know, like <laughs> it wouldn't be stuck yeah. if it was somewhere that it was going to be easy to get it out of, because it would have just walked away, you know, wouldn't be an issue. Yeah,
2: we've got even a thing called a people mover in there, and uh, it's got all these straps on its 1,800 pounds, and you can get it under the horse, and then if you can attach the one of these loops to that on either side of that, and then the loop on the horse, so you got a drag system if you do have to go over kind of really rough stuff too, and that's all that's in the bottom of the bag. So uh, you know, as you mentioned that, because some of these skids are really nice, but they're they're great big, you know, ten feet. You know, you, you don't you don't always have that. So we got this, and if you tear a couple holes in it, great, get another one after you're done. You're going to use it again in about a year or maybe two years.
0: So you said people mover. I thought maybe we were talking about. You know, like when I was pregnant and I got stuck in the mud out in the sheep lot and lost my boots. And we could have used some sort of a hoist system for that one.
2: That's the (laughs) other thing. We always make a joke and say, God dang it, now you animal lover people. If we go out there and the rider, there's been a wreck and the horse is off the edge and there's also a person there. You got to use the people motor on the person first. (laughs) Because these other people say, oh, we got to get the horse. No. No. Okay. Nope. People first.
1: So as people who have livestock, one of the things that's, you know, is always in the back of your mind is what to do in an emergency. So what things should we be doing as livestock owners to be ready for emergencies when they come up? What things should we have already in place?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And there's lots of good literature on it, but figure out what the risk factor is for the season that season that you experience, you know, it could be, you know, uh, freezing, it could be flood, it could be fire, it could be, you get a lot of earthquakes. And so, you know, when I, I give a talk in Japan, it was all about earthquake and animal sheltering and things like that. So if you're gonna have a fire, okay, what are we gonna do? If we're gonna shelter in place, where are we gonna move the animals or whatnot for a defensible space? And that may mean we got to rearrange a little landscaping. So you sit and make a plan. So that that's the that's the deal. And you can you can the farmers and ranchers are very practical. But if you just say okay, identify what's the problem, and then say okay, could we move all these cattle uh, if the fire starts right away? If it's a long distance away and it's liable to come, yeah, you may be able to have time. But if you don't, so you figure out a scenario for a rapid. Uh, What are you going to do? And if you got to leave everybody, if you got to have the carrier for the dog, the cats, and all this stuff, there's some very elaborate, you know, preparations. Have seven days of food and, you know, this kind of thing. Just enough to, to save you first and your family members and then the pets. And then what about the livestock and things like that? So you have your important papers, damn it. You know, just have them in a deal that you grab and take with you. You know, have that on your list. So uh you just got to sit down and say, "This could happen." That's the first thing is that this probably won't happen to me. You know, well, we all got a safety belt on now, but back in the day, you know, when they were just didn't even have them, it was like, oh, "I'm not going on too long a trip. I don't have to wear it." You know, now that kind of thing. You just have to say, "This could happen," or it happened to somebody else. So we better sit down and go through the personal plan. The family plan the pet plan and then the livestock plan and then if you check with your county office of emergency services because once you leave it's hard to get back in and if you have to take some ding online training about which basically tells you if the fire department to go in there you need an escort if we tell you to leave you got to leave and very practical but you get a little Okay badge, if you will. So they finally passed legislation because ranchers would go in and say, Hey, I just gotta push these cows out up here. And they say, No, it's a roadblock. Or trailers trying to get into a a, a a stable that's that's being evacuated and they don't have enough trailers and they're so they yeah, they want everybody to evacuate. And the guy at the roadblock says, You can't come in. No, we're we're going. And so, well, I, I'm I'm here to help move the horses out and we have time. Sorry, you can't get in. So if you have one of these Office of Emergency Services, what do I need to get back in or to be helpful uh, or to say that I understand what the risks are and that you've got a name and you've got maybe a badge uh, is helpful to me because when I've got to go somewhere and they're blocking people, blocking people, and then they'll have a, a uh, code that I got to say to the guy on the uh, the roadblock and that, you know, they make a joke out. They go, tell him Madigan, that's the code. I go, Uh, I don't think I'm making that up. It's in my driver's license, but anyway. I
0: like that it's like uh, Bond, James Bond. He'll just be, you know, Madigan, Dr. (laughs) Madigan, here to rescue horses. Um, Yeah. I was thinking, too, you know, so many rural folks where, you know, I'm in Iowa and more of the emergencies we see are flooding and that. um, But we're starting to see so much about Pets especially getting separated from owners during emergencies and trying to get people matched back with the right animals. And I know as a as a rural farmer, this fancy town crap like microchipping has never been something I considered. And then yeah. you know, we got a got another dog and the vet said, you know, it's it's twenty bucks to get a microchipped now, right? I was like, Well, shit. And then she even came out to the car and did it. And I have to say, that's pretty cheap insurance for knowing that, you know, somebody will.
2: Microchips Chips That much easier to bring back. The other thing you can do when you get separated and somebody says, oh, yeah, that's my Palomino, you know, quarter horse there. I want to take it home is a simple thing to do is take your picture with your pet and have it on your phone that you're not going to lose or back up or on the Internet. Because you can show a picture of your pet, but you could have got it off the internet. But not the two of you standing together was some, you know, something that reflects, you know, you're at your place too, and that's a very, you know, useful actually re- reunification thing. We had to make these pet pets for us for the campfire, of the butte. There was so many animals overwhelming this temporary shelter in this uh, former mental hospital of all things, you know, back in the day when people weren't on the street. It, so we were trying to keep a shelter. It was terrible. So we wanted to move to other counties Well, they'd say, well, we could lose track of them and they'd have microchip, but what if they have the wrong reader or whatnot? So we created these pet passports. And the best thing is back to the old thing is a photo of the of the pet that goes along with the collar because the collar can come off. The, the microchip is great if you have it on there, but the, the photo with the owner that's going to be requesting the animal whether it's a horse or not is good and then if your horse get loose you know you it's nice to have something written on them or a collar or something like that but we have microchip for horses too
0: so but what I'm hearing you say is that the next time somebody argues about having our dogs in our formal family portraits I can tell them that you said we had to I like <laughs> I like this a lot it's I mean.
2: A- it's a safety measure, damn it. We yeah. had our we had our
0: dog <laughs> in our weddings, so there's dogs in every family picture. Oh yeah, you know it's
2: yeah. No, that's right. And you can't keep them out of there. If you did, you and you're videoing, all you'd hear is
0: woof woof.
2: You know that they might as well just let them sit there next to you.
0: Yep, my uh, in nope, our wedding nope. photos, my Aussie is tucked up under the skirt of my wedding dress through pretty much the entire ceremony. Oh yeah, ceremony. There you go. So you know,
2: yeah. I forget what movie I saw where, uh, oh, it was James Harriet. Do you watch that where the, the dog ate the wedding ring? And then they had to give, give him the mustard to make him throw up. <laughs> yeah, so, right.
0: One of our dogs actually ate my daughter's umbilical cord when it fell off right after she was born. So I said, you know, oh, that's wow. how you know they're really part of the family when they go ahead and... Eat they're, party or
2: kid? Yeah, they're bonded.
0: He looked so Not cute in the yeah. hospital, himself. just to clarify, though. Not at cake. the hospital. No, no, <laughs> nobody right. would they let Ollie into, into in the, the hospital. hospital. <laughs> 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 Poor dumb creature.
1: That's all right. I'm going to ask. I was going to ask a parenting question, John, because we're both uh parenting and an ag podcast, and I'm at the stage of life where my oldest is going off to school in the fall, and as a professor, I'm wondering if you have any advice on. Things that we should be doing now to make sure that she's as ready as she can be for uh, the university or college experience. Because, you know, as a parent, I'm feeling nervous about it, obviously. So I figure you've got some yeah. expertise in this area.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a changing environment, you know, from when, I, and I have uh, my kids, you know, went through that. And uh, I ended up uh, taking them to school, pulling them out of school and taking them to New Zealand with me when I did that uh, six month sabbatical So my son went to high school at a school and then my daughter went to Massa University and she ended up staying there and graduating. So the, what, what, when I left her there, she was living with a, a family that I met, and knew via Vet Med and, and that kind of thing. So she had a, it wasn't uh, some, you know, uh, eight kids living in a three-story place at like Idaho. Uh, you know, which is a party, you know, thing. So I think, you know, the dorm thing is good because you start and you meet people and staying in the dorm is is a good idea. And if you have a school that, you know, here in California, there's some egg schools, Cal Poly and things like that. And uh, Davis is it's huge now. But I think uh, getting in the dorm, and then when they do get outside the dorm, you really want to be careful what, you know, on the roommate selection and, you know, how many kids are in there and things like that and spend some extra money. So they have some privacy, you know, for the studying because the distraction when I was in college, one of the things I had to do is I had to move out of the apartment. I was living with three other guys and get my own, you know, it was a real dive, but I could sleep, get up, study, you know, I had control of my environment. So I think that that is really important. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's a challenge, uh, you know, I, I things are with the social media and all this stuff, so I think a good school that's grounded in, you know, fundamentals, and that, that's that's getting harder to find, uh, would be one of the most important things, and then the dorm, and then the schooling, and then, uh, you know, that, that in letting them know there's going to be a lot of distractions, and, uh, you know, that if they want to stay there, you know, you, you, they're going to have to, you know, try to achieve this. And if they get into trouble and something, that's okay. But get the help, figure out where you go to the study hall, where you go to the thing and don't feel like if the, your roommate doesn't go to those extra study sessions that you do. Like this, Bill Linfoot told me, he said, if you got to stay eight hours for that physics test and the, your roommate And for you to just get a B and your roommate, you know, just sails through and gets an A, it doesn't matter. That's what you got to do. You're, you're, you've got to, you know, you're, you have your own thing, but if you got to do that eight hours to get that grade, then do it. It doesn't matter what the other people are doing. So that was good advice for me because I did have to really, uh, had to record classes and things like that. So you figure out what your learning style is and then, uh, you know, it's a it's a bit of an adaption and uh, but I think the type of school and the housing that you have is the best first start that I would suggest. and that my kids thrived in New Zealand, and my son didn't have as good a coaching thing here in the town we were in. the coaching there was very, very uh, good for uh, getting the students to feel like the coach believed in them and that uh, you know uh, you know, you want to play in this position? If it's working, let's try that. If you tell me that helps you, but otherwise, you know, and then the coach would hear would tell him, stand here, don't do this. And, and, uh, so this, that, that, and then they would walk to school, uh, you know, the proximity to the, to the, you know, where your, your classes are, it's really important. That's why the dorms to start with, and then your secondary housing, don't be too far away. And, uh, so you can bike or walk, you know, to school if you can.
1: Yeah, those are good reminders. I uh, it's residence applications open today, the day that we're recording. So we're uh, we're on <laughs> on schedule to get her application uh, put in today to be in residence next year. So we've uh, hopefully we'll have the first piece of your advice uh,
0: followed for sure. Oh, that's good. John, I actually did my study abroad at Massey and had a great experience. So, oh, you did. Yep. But Arlene, my advice was just going to be to let her buy some more cows so she doesn't have any money to get into trouble. You know, a couple more show heifers, she no won't money have for money for tuition or either.
1: Eh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Minor you have to little, pay for tuition and residence note. somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, what do you see being next for you in your research? And I noticed, you know, poking through the tremendous list of papers you've written and been cited in um, some work around human medicine with cortisol and the sympathetic nervous system and all that. And, you know, as, as that relates to your research with the Madigan squeeze and that, so what are you, what's next? What's the, what's the next thing to put your name on? And,
2: you know, well, I, you know, uh, my daughter won't mind me telling, but she, you know, uh, it's a genetic thing. She developed postural orthostatic tachycardia or POTS. And, uh, it's a, uh, you know, post-viral thing. And then your heart rate goes up. You don't circulate your blood the way you did your blood. Your body feels like you're what we call hypovolemic, like you dumped a liter or two of blood out on the sidewalk. So you're weak. You can't put your hands over your head to shampoo. You do all this stuff. So, uh, I didn't have a lot of things for that it's a it's a long story but I ended up she was getting prescribed IV fluids periodically and seeing a good neurologist cardiologist so I I saw this machine this is called external counter pulsation uh, and uh, it's a deal that squeezes your legs uh, in a synchrony uh, with it because the EKG is being recorded so I went with her to her cardiology appointment and of course the guy sees me sitting there and he when we both come in he goes uh-oh I got another one of you, you professors going to tell the, tell us cardiologists what to do and you know whatnot. So I asked him if we could use his machine that he had up there. And he said, sure, it won't work. And, and it did. So I ended up buying the machine and then getting trained on it. So for six years, actually, I go there once a week and she gets on this machine and then she can actually function very well. It resets her autonomic nervous system. And there's a lot of people suffering from that. And she just started this new medication that slows her heart rate down. And she's not going to use that machine. So there's a discovery there with a drug that's designed for something else. It's, it slows the AV node in the heart, but she's a completely different person now. And uh, so I think trying to share uh, some stuff about what we learned on the pots, we want to do a broadcast because there's a lot of kids that they get told it's all in your head. We can't find anything wrong with you. Uh, You know, you just got to suck it up and, and they actually have a, you know, a problem And her mother had it and, it was very life changing for a for a gal who grew up on a cow ranch, and then you can't walk to the mailbox without sitting down sometimes and stuff. So that's one thing. And this thing with the squeeze and the kangaroo mother care, I'm telling you, this uh, that was invented. You know, seen in not invented, but it was midwives started saying, "Don't bring your baby." This is in Colombia into the uh, ICU; they're going to die there. Uh, there were a lot of premature births, poor, poor prenatal care. Well, when they started delivering the baby and then sticking them on the mother's chest and then tightly swaddling because they had to walk around with them, they wore them all the time. Well, that's the same thing that's happening, I think, with the squeezes. It helps and they show that it increases oxygenation and increases survival, it increases uh, feeding response immunization, and now they have a study that's gone out for 18 years showing that your neurodevelopment scores are different. So that's one thing. I think looking at our mechanisms that we've discovered with the neurosteroids and applying that with the brainwave and other things in infants, I'd like to, we started that and we had some hiccups with it. We did that with Stanford. We have Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation preliminary grant. So I'd like to re, you know, uh, revisit that thing uh, a little bit and and get some more awareness because kids that are in NICU and everything and, and the in the and the doctors and we see this in vet med. The hardest thing to get the Madigan squeeze to be used is in one of these critical care units because they can run the IV fluids, they can run the oxygen. That's what they do. They got the resident training man. That's the kind of cases they live and live for. Well, if you don't integrate that particular procedure, you don't change some of the neurosteroids, which can help you and maybe the animals. So the same with the infants getting this and now a lot of hospitals do it, but I think if you had a marker and we think we've well, identified a marker in foals with actually this is serum progesterone level and if you could get a quick test for that and you say the reason this baby's not ventilating is because it's full of this stuff because it doesn't need to ventilate in the womb and now it's out of the womb and it's still got this thing that's turning this off and that's why you've got to use the ventilator. So use a procedure or start developing uh, drugs that reverse these neurosteroids and then the last one is that we saw uh, and I had a did a little video and the university had me do it and uh, and I was talking about these abnormal behavior and people would come up and tell me about their kids with autism that had dif- you know difficult births or uh, you know uh, cesarean sections and then the kid developed autism and And that is a risk factor for autism. And there is a paper showing in kids 10 and 12 years old in saliva that they have four of the neurosteroids that are elevated in the dummy fold. They're actually elevated in these kids in the saliva. So they may end up actually not fully transitioning consciousness at birth. And I'm wondering if some subset of kids with autism, that's what's going on.
0: I was uh, laughing during your POTS discussion there simply because I'm in the process of diagnosis and treatment for hyper hyper adrenaline pots and it is it's a mind trip for sure and realizing what an impact it has on your life if your heart rate just goes bonkers was really uh yeah
2: well the reason it goes bonkers is because you're Sympathetic nervous system is you're like a, you know, a a small pump on a huge pipe and those pipes are open. And when you, when that happens in this colon the drug is called chlorin colonar, and uh, that's a brand for it. And uh, it's working on another mechanism that is fundamental to this pots thing and all pots in my, when I've seen this and read it, the the, the reason your heart rate goes up is because it's hyperadrenergic. Adrenaline's keeping you alive, you know, because, and then it's screwing with your brain and your fight and flight or flight system, shutting off the perfusion to your gut and doing all these things. So this, this medication, uh, could be very, very useful and it was very hard to get. And there's a subset, there's a a paper on uh, 26 cases, case with POTS treated with this, uh, 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 with this medication, and uh, it's working on a on a channel that's screwed up, and uh, women have it more than men. It's post viral a lot of times, and then it shuts off the normal regulation of your autonomic nervous system. So when you stand up, you're like a column of water rather than everything integrating, and uh, and then if it, your blood pressure starts to go low, uh, adrenaline is going to keep you keep you you know, for going. So that means your heart rate goes through the roof. My daughters would go up to 140, 160 standing up, you know, and now it doesn't happen. She's out moving hay and doing things, you know, this week, this is one week on this thing. And uh, it was a massive thing to get through there and try it It because it's a small trial and get the insurance. But that's a breakthrough. Uh, Very exciting to see somebody's life return. Well,
0: and it's it's good to see getting past this, you know, well, it's all in your head. Well, of course, anything that's ruled by hormones is in your head. That's, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of clinicians have a really hard time with anything that they can't actually, you know, poke at. And so if they don't have a good way to test for it, it's just not a thing. And it's, yeah. I think we're just starting to see some really exciting research about hormones and the automatic autonomic nervous system and all of that. So it's it's interesting to see where it's going to go.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't think there's a more complicated system. I mean, it's easier to go to the moon and back than figure out how your autonomic nervous system integrates every movement. You see all these computers that do to get a guy's arm to move this way and that way. Well, try standing up, walking around, moving, run your heart, run your gut, you know, hello, you know, uh, this is complex stuff. And if you're lucky enough to target that one in a lot of things are are you know channels that's how this squeeze works it actually opens up the chloride channel we think in the GABA receptor which is the one that that uh, valium and barbiturates work on so when you put that thing on it opens up this gated movement just like throwing a switch and they go to sleep Mm -hmm. and then when you remove it the gate closes and the ions readjust and you wake up and it's instantaneous so that's all gated movement of ions, and this new drug works on this one channel for moving these ions around, but it's fixing the peripheral circulation as well. So it's uh, uh, very excited about that.
0: All right, so our last real question here, I guess. We ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, and it can be a real one or you can make up one to you know, make sure that you win, what category would it be?
2: Oh I saw that question on there, and uh i i was uh I, it didn't come to me right away uh, uh <laughs> i don't I don't know i would I would probably uh, have something for kids to learn about veterinary medicine, and I wouldn't care whether I won some award, but talk to kids that are thinking about it, but don't feel they could do it.
0: I like that. They can always become recreational veterinarians like the rest of us livestock farmers. That's how I like to think.
2: Yeah, but okay. you can also tell them, you know, I struggled with this, so here's the things you can do. is Number one, don't give up, and then, you know, learn how to study, learn how to do a few things, and, uh, you know, you can reach your dreams. Did you
0: ever consider being a small animal vet, or was that never on the table?
2: Yeah, I actually, when I uh, graduated, I moved to Ukiah, and uh, the only the guy that hired me did nothing but small animal, and I, I, done the uh, the dude ranch children's camp stuff, and then stayed in touch with the owners of that place. We had sixty horses there, and I took care of them in the winter, and I knew those people, so I wanted to go back to Mendocino County where I spent all my time. It was very rural, so. I I saw small animals there, and uh, it was really a lot of fun. There was no referral clinic, so you you man you took care of everything. Uh, you could pin femurs, and and you get help because this guy had been doing stuff a lot. So you know you're on emergency duty and hit by cars and things like that, and uh, so it, it was a lot of fun actually uh, doing that. And then I started building up enough. Uh, you know, large animals, you know, sheep, cattle, goats, a lot of of horses stuff. And then they, uh, built a, put a barn behind the clinic and, and then uh, sold that when I got my job offer over there. But I, I really enjoyed the, uh, small animal stuff too. And, uh, you never know what comes through the door there. And uh, so it was It was exciting and fun.
1: I will, we're going to ha- go ahead and move into our cussing, dis- cussing and Discussing segment. So this is kind of a free-for-all of whatever we want to talk about on any given episode. And listeners can enter their Cussing and Discussing entries. If you go to the show notes, you'll find either our speak pipe where you can leave us a voice memo or an email address, and we'll read it out for you. Katie, what are you
0: cussing and discussing this week? So... You know, I have a a newly six-year-old child. And I swear to God, that kid brings home an entire ream of paper from school every day, which is its own thing. But she rolls them up sheet by sheet. She can't, I mean, she has a folder. She has a backpack. But instead, she rolls them up and then she folds them in half and puts them in the front pocket of her backpack. And when that pocket is literally jammed full then she starts putting them in the main pocket of her backpack but she still rolls them into a tube and folds them and then puts them in the pocket. So it's like a bunch of tiny diplomas? Yeah kind of but it'll be you know 25 drawings and then that one paper that needs a signature or she's going to get kicked out of kindergarten and that's just going to be the end of her academic career right there. I, I don't know. It's and I asked her why she did it and she looked at me like what else would I do and I just okay like I I don't want to be that mom who's like you know crushing her little tiny baby spirit but also what the hell I, children
1: yeah anyway. and are they all vitally important to her do you have to keep everything or are you yes. uh, sneak
0: the art yes. out the back door oh yes yeah very important yes. We lost a pom-pom off on the other day, and the cat took it, and it was it was bad. Uh, <laughs> it was a crisis. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So my cussing and discussing for this week is the fact that the more people we talk to, and I realized this after our mind-blowing episode today, the more people we talk to, the more I realize how much I don't know, which is fantastic because there's so much in the world to understand, but also frustrating because... It's all out there, and I can't get it all in my brain, and I don't know so much stuff. So it's probably a half, half, what is it? glass half-empty, half-full situation where depending on the day, it's both exciting or frustrating that there's so much information out there that you just can't even process it all.
0: That's a good one, Arlene.
1: John, do you have anything to share with us? Anything bugging you these days, or are we, uh, we're going to sign off for this week?
2: Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, uh, you know, the more, uh, you get towards the PM of life, I think you realize you don't know all the stuff you don't know. I mean, Jesus. And, uh, it, and, and things are often a little more complicated, you know, than, than you think, but that doesn't prevent, you know, some things from happening that are good. And then being able to completely, uh, you know, assimilate or understand that, you know, sometimes it takes a while, but uh, no, I think, and then ideas, new ideas take a long time to get into a uh, fact, you know, uh, the the way that these, I'm going to try to do a survey to find out how many animals around the world. I know there's a lot of different countries doing it. I got one from Iran the other day, they're doing the squeeze thing. So this, the fact that it hits social media, they're not getting the owners of the animals are not getting educated on this from veterinarians. They're actually a veterinarian that would be me, put something on the internet that had some science basis to it and then shared it. And that's the new way that a lot of things are being learned. So that's a, and it used to be you, your vet would tell you this or tell you that it's, it's, it's going too fast for that. And in fact, it's better because uh, there's a broader audience, especially if it's something you can do yourself to help a, a particular situation. So I think that's the value of the uh, internet, social media. If it's used in a positive way, it can be problem-solving. Yeah, that's a
1: good point. So that's really all I'd point. say
2: is that... Uh, yeah, because...
1: Like you said, it's yeah. it's something that you can do that you can fix for the for the person who is looking at an animal and thinking, well, it's probably going to die. You know, this is this is something that you can try, and you don't. If you can't afford for the vet to come, yeah. or you don't don't feel like there it's going to be any help, then yeah, you've you've got something at your disposal that you can at least give it a shot, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, well, and I think if we could get more of that. You know, and then make that accessible to the subgroups or whatever that would utilize it. Uh, that would be a, a positive uh, <clears throat> thing. It's a it's a sort of a uh, telemedicine without the doctor.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but <great>. it's
2: <laughs> telling you something to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. We don't always want to search our own symptoms up on the internet, but yeah, if there, <laughs> there's there's ways to there's, to yeah. get help out there if you you know where to look and what's, what's safe to try. So Katie and I want to thank you so much for joining us here today. And if people want to find out more about you and your work, where should they find you online?
2: Well, I don't know. I don't have my own website. I have, uh, you know, uh, the manual of equine neonatal medicine, I guess we have a website there and then the equine and comparative neurology group. I'm still in that at UC Davis, uh, and uh you know my emails j e Madigan at u c davis edu if somebody has some questions or wants uh something you know sent that way and my company that uh our little company it's an l l c so that we can pay our taxes and do everything is loopsrescue dot com and you could send a message uh to me there and whatnot so that that might be one way of doing it
1: yeah, that's perfect. thank you so much for joining us.
2: yeah, well, it's been a pleasure and uh Nice meeting you. And
0: we won't start lambing for a few more weeks, but once we do, I'll get some videos because I'm sure we'll have at least one lamb that'll need squeezed. And if we don't have any that need it, I'll find one and do it anyway. Just
2: because it'll be <laughs> a hell of a lot to easier hug. than
0: finding a calf. So
2: That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, great great uh, visiting with both of you and take care. Great.
0: Great. Thanks. Thank you you for joining us today on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show.
1: Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode.
0: You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group.
1: We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.